this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. I had the opportunity to interview Stephanie Breedlove the other day. She sold her $9 million payroll company for a cool $54 million. How does she do it? She focused on the eight things that drive company value. Things like what we call the Switzerland structure, monopoly control, recurring revenue, all things you're going to evaluate in your own business using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the survey. Go to valuebuilder.com. So have you ever noticed that when you're talking to entrepreneurs, one of the most cliche things that comes up is that they were just on the precipice, right on the verge of selling their company, and like hours or days before the deal was supposed to close, it all fell apart into a big explosion. I mean, as I describe that, I'm sure you've heard stories of your own colleagues, people in your forum groups where that's the reality, right? They had a deal on the table and it blew up. And I don't think that's a surprise. In fact, I think it's a negotiation tactic a lot of buyers use to get you emotionally invested in the sale only to change the deal terms at the very last minute, so much so that pulling away from the deal is just too hard. And they get the upper hand in negotiation. You go ahead and consummate a deal that you would never have agreed to prior to the letter of intent. And that's exactly what happened to Jason Bolt, my next guest from Society 43, built a really successful company, was right at the last minute of doing a deal where 80% of the cash would be paid up front, 20% on the come, right up until the moment, literally days before the close, when a new deal term came in and 80% of the deal up front went down to 50% of the deal up front and 50% on an earnout. Jason walked rightly and found a new buyer, consummated the deal, and ultimately had a successful exit. But as a great illustration of the shady, underhanded tactics some buyers use to change the deal terms when you're emotionally involved. And hopefully that doesn't happen to you. To hear how Jason successfully navigated around that, here's Jason Bolt. Jason Bolt, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you very much, John. We were joking before I hit record that any guy with the name Bolt must be able to run fast. And you can't <laughs> run fast. That's such a disappointment. <laughs> it is. You know, I've tried. I, I was in track for a while. I've done the exercises. But for whatever reason, I'll blame my dad. I think genetically I was just not destined to be a, a runner. But you were destined to be an entrepreneur. So tell me about this yes. company, Society 43. It's got a very curious name. What did you guys do? It is a curious name. Well, we, um, I had the idea actually when I was at Autzen Stadium down in Eugene, Oregon. I was at a game there. And uh, just looking around, you know, I was going to school and, and all the students were wearing these, you know, 20 to $30 Wayfair style sunglasses, um, usually black pairs. And, and then they were wearing all this green and yellow gear, fan gear. And it, it struck me that uh, I'd never heard or seen a company that had made like fan eyewear. Um, so I started doing a lot of research around like where eyewear is made. Um, I was actually running two companies at the time and I was already, uh, making some lenses for the other company, Revent, um, and found a company that could make these Wayfair style frames, uh, at an affordable price and they were high quality. So 
Um, I asked them to send me uh, some frames with uh, you know green paint on the frame and then a yellow mirror on the lens and then the reverse uh, as samples. And I was like, I bet students are going to love these. Fans are going to love these. They'll wear them to the game. They'll wear them around campus. And uh, it was like, I think a month later, I got a shipment of um, about 100 samples in and, and started handing them out to friends. And uh, they would wear them around campus. And I just asked for feedback. I was like, you know, you, anyone asking for them? And the day after I handed them out, uh, I had 10 of my friends come up to me and say, people are asking where to buy these. A guy that was in a fraternity said his whole frat wanted pairs. Um, and so the idea, uh, you know, started at the game. And then I was like, there could be a much bigger market opportunity here um, to what, make. What are you, Jason, at that yeah. point, what are you paying for that first hundred frames? You're just kind of giving, giving away to people. Like, what, what, is, what, yeah. what was that costing you? Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I just write to, I go on Alibaba. So, you know, just, I think a lot of people now, entrepreneurs, you go on Alibaba, look for products that you want, and then you reach out to these manufacturers and say, Hey, I'm starting this company. I'd like to get some samples. So those first hundred were actually free. I just had to pay for shipping. Um, but those samples came in and, uh, you know, it was like kind of a, a market test, real time market test, just handing them out to friends to, to see the reaction. Um, and that was kind of the genesis there of like, okay, I can create, you know, these, these, uh, high quality sunglasses that are affordable for uh, passionate fans. Um, and it was fun on campus, you know, I, again, handed them out and then I, I imported more and, um, started selling them out of the back of my uh, Nissan Xterra. I, I got a little parking spot on the way to games and, uh, my girlfriend and I at the time would set up a table set out the shades on the table and we were charging 20 bucks and we would sell, uh, you know, three to about two to three thousand dollars worth, uh, before every game, which was amazing. They were just clearing out. Um, and did they have the logo of the team on the side or is it just the colors of the lenses are matching the colors of the team at that time? And this is kind of a funny story, but at that time it was just the colors. So, uh, real scrappy. I had made up my own logo that was like, it's kind of picture stylized picture of an eye. But um, it, we were more, um, you know, working with the colors, the team colors. So it was very obvious that it was a, you know, a, a fan product for Oregon fans. Um, and, uh, and come to find out, eventually we did get licensing. I think it was about eight months in. The licensing department at University of Oregon had been taking pictures of us selling. <laughs> and we're about to kind of move on us and say, you know, this is an infringement of, uh, of our colorway. You're obviously associating it uh, with Oregon Ducks. Uh, but we ended up striking a, a licensing deal instead. So it worked out for both parties. So every pair of sunglasses you sell, they get a little chip of the piece of the action. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. It's anywhere from like 8 to 13%, depending on, you know, the the uh, popularity of the school in general. So like Texas, University of Texas is on the higher end. Some of the smaller universities uh, are on the lower end, but yeah, it's a percentage of, of sales. I love this business. This is awesome. Thank you. And so, Thank you. So, I'm, I'm curious because Alibaba comes up a lot in, in conversation. So you got the first batch for free. Did you end up making the first order or, or placing the first order through the same company that, that sent you the, the free units? I did. Yeah. I, I had asked for samples from several companies and with licensing in particular, you know, the colors are really important. They have to Pantone match. So I, I ended up actually getting samples from, I think, three different factories. And the, the factory I went with uh, was an exact match to the Pantones I'd sent. They had good communication. 
Um, the packaging was nice and it was delivered on time. So these are all factors I was kind of weighing in when, when deciding, you know, who do I want to scale with? Um, and then I actually ended up flying over there, uh, within two months just to, you know, check it out, walk the factory and make sure it was legit. Um, cause you always have that question in your mind of like, <laughs> if you're just importing and you haven't actually seen the manufacturing, like where are things coming from? How are they made? So, um, yeah, it was, it was uh, a decision I made to scale with that particular factory. I, I'd say after that first two months of going to see them and working with them and, and establishing good communication. So when you licensed the deal with, was it University of Oregon? Yes, that was our first okay. license. That was 2010. So, Got it. And so did yeah. they give you permission to use their logo in the glasses as well? Correct. Yeah. So there's, you get kind of access to all of their artwork when you get licensing, you are licensed in a particular category. So for us, it was eyewear and accessories. Um, and, and then there's a certain, you know, rate that's uh, set for that category percentage of sales that you'll pay. Uh, How but do you they get police that. How do they police that? Like, how do you know whether they sold 2000 units or 20,000 units at a game? Um, they can audit. So you have to open your books to them if they request it. Um, and it's a, you know, quarterly payment system. So they're, they're pretty, they're on it and they will frequently audit. And so there were some times where we had overpaid, sometimes where we'd underpaid, not obviously intentionally, but, um, yeah, most of the universities are on it. And in fact, there are these, uh, bigger organizations now that handle a lot of that for universities. So the largest one is, is called the CLC, the collegiate licensing company. And they manage a lot of the approvals, the artwork, the auditing payments uh, for a majority of the universities in the U.S. Got it. So how does the business evolve? So you get University of Oregon in 2010. I mean, take us up to, to more present day. Like, how did it sort of evolve? What do you see as the big seminal moments in, in the development of the company? Yeah, you know, I mean, it was such a fun brand and business to build because it's really focused on sports and excitement and, you know, just fan passion. And so... Um, you know, those first few months, it was all just hustling out of the Xterra, going to games. I remember we'd, we'd walk around tailgates and, and sell there, me and my friends. Um, once we got licensing with the University of Oregon, uh, sales really exploded because we added, you know, we added the O on the side and it just legitimized the brand and, and um, like Autzen Stadium, the... Uh, the athletic department there agreed to advertise with us, so they put them up on the jumbotron. And, and that first, those first six months, that first year, we sold to over 25% of the student population at University of Oregon. Um, so they were everywhere. It was it was an, uh, an explosion of product, and I was still shipping out of my apartment. You know, I had <laughs> I literally had sunglasses surrounding uh, my bed, boxes of sunglasses. Kitchen was full. Um, but I, it was just such an exciting time. I was like, all right, we got to, you know, we got to keep the gas down. And I went up and went to university of Washington, um, bought actually a bunch of one way tickets to go to all the PAC 12 schools, uh, meet with their licensing directors and, uh, just showed them the success at university of Oregon. And it was like a domino effect. Um, you know, university of Oregon at the time, the football team was going to the Rose bowl. There was a lot of hype there. So uh, a lot of hype around that brand. So a lot of the other schools were uh, really jumping on board, just seeing that this was kind of a part of that um, new fan product. Uh, the fan category had been kind of stale for a lot of schools in terms of new, exciting product. Um, and it was flashy attention getting. So the retailers loved it. 
Um, so that f second year, we actually ended up getting 16 licenses. Um, and then the following year, we added another 30. And then by the time I sold, we had 80 collegiate licenses, um, the NBA and MLS. Wow. How did the ML, uh, so you said NBA and MLS? Mm-hmm, correct, yeah. Uh, how did those deals differ from the collegiate deals? So, I mean, were they essentially the same or, or were there huge differences between you know, the professional organizations and the universities? Um, there were fairly stark differences. I would say the main one was that um, like MLS and NBA, it's just one licensing department. So you're not dealing with kind of a fragmented um, group of licensors um, where with the collegiate market, you know, I ended up, I think, flying to... I think it was 25 different universities to get the total of 80 licenses. So um, just the efficiency of applying for licensing and then access to artwork uh, for the professional leagues is, is much greater than I would say the collegiate market. How did your selling change from the back of the Xterra to you know, <laughs> 80 different universities? Like what was the sales model as you grew? Yeah. So, you know, we think about scaling and um, creating processes so that we can handle all of that, uh, that volume and, and it, the sales model evolved to using reps. Um, so uh, as much as I love selling out of my Xterra and that fan interaction, and I actually continued to do that when I could, uh, <laughs> uh, we had a network of reps around the country that, uh, had other, you know, um, licensed products they were selling into retailers. So they knew the industry well, they had connections. Um, we met with How all of them. How did you find them? Oh, um, a lot of research actually. It wasn't as easy as I thought it would be, um, so there are there are rep groups that will represent larger brands like uh, Nike and Adidas and others. Um, but for a company of our size, uh, it was it was a lot of digging and networking. You know, we'd go to trade shows and ask around uh, about you know who are the the uh, best independent reps to work with. And over time, we we developed a, a great group. I think we ended up with twenty between twenty and twenty five reps. Um, uh, at the at the time we sold, so really really great group, um, very connected, very passionate about the product. You know they 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 are the 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 face of the brand as they're going to all the retailers. So for me that was a pretty uh, crucial process, just vetting them and making sure they were the right people to represent Society Forty Three. And you know, this eyewear is this can be a a, a very a uh, big spectrum of quality, right? So you've got right. you know, very high-end glasses that'll protect your eyes from any possible UV, <laughs> A, B, blah, blah, blah. And then mm -hmm. you've got like really cheap stuff that can actually, I think, hurt your eyes. I'm not an optometrist, but I think they can actually, it lets more light right. in, but it's not being protected. Like, where did you guys land on the quality spectrum? And was that like an issue at all with any of the licensing deals? No, because that was a, a focus up front in terms of like making sure that the, the quality was um, was there. Uh, just, you know, I actually took the first few pairs into my optometrist because that was a concern <laughs> of mine uh, was ensuring, you know, that they tested, provided UV protection. Um, impact testing is another one. You don't want, you know, the lenses to shatter when they get hit. And you know, and I did have a background in lens quality, lens technology with the other business. So I kind of knew what I was looking at, what I was looking for. And I had access to um, some of the testing equipment overseas. So 
that was a really big focus for us. And of course, you know, um, when you're selling a $20 product, keeping cost of goods down is, is important. So for us, it became a volume game. Um, we used the same shape, the same mold for over, I mean, it was hundreds of thousands of frames that were just, uh, you know, had different colorways and different logos on them, but they all went through the same production process and used the same materials. So work me backwards. So, so a university of Oregon student is buying these for how much? Uh, you, so at retail, they were $20 online and at retail. Yeah. Okay. So they're 20 bucks. So then what is the retailer paying for them? Uh, so typical retailers will will want what's 50 points. So it's, uh, you, you're selling them to the retailer for $10. Uh, so you do take a, a substantial hit when you sell into retail. And what are you buying these things for ballpark? Yeah. I mean, it, it varied, but anywhere from, you know, 250 to five dollars i'd say wow nice margin yeah 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 it was a good you know and then you add it you layer in packaging and you know shipping and all of and that shipping, but yeah. Um, yeah yeah so um you know eyewear in general is uh a it's a high margin product as many people know um so for me it it, it was a great category to go into not only because no one was making uh fan eyewear for fans but but the margin allowed for some pretty cool marketing opportunities and um, yeah, great product. So you mentioned Revent as we, Revent, I think I'm pronouncing it correctly, right? Yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. good. So you mentioned your other company. Um, I want to get to that in a moment in more detail, but just, just superficially tell me, you're running two companies simultaneously. Is one sort of on hold as you're, like Society 43 sounds like it was a rocket ship. Uh, is yeah. Revent sort of on hold in the background while you're doing this, or is it full steam ahead at the same time as well? Yeah, it's full steam ahead at that time. Uh, it was easier to manage, I'll say. Like, I, you know, I had a team that that would manage both, um, and it it grew organically. Um, we really created the replacement lens market with Revent. So, uh, the model there was adding products online, and they would just sell. And we weren't doing a whole lot in the way of marketing. Um, but it 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 actually. Um, as far as growth, it started to outpace Society 43, even though Society 43 was ex- experiencing explosive growth. So um, most of the attention went to Society 43 just because of the the, the distribution and, and sales model. Um, mm. It was just more involved and, and took more uh, more personnel to, to do it right and do it well. Got it. And so what was the trigger that made you think, okay, now's the time to sell Society 43? Yeah. So for me, you know, Society 43 was really established. Like we had proven the motto. We were adding licenses. Uh, we had a great uh, rep network. Uh, we had a, a substantial number of retailers. I think at that time we had 700 doors. Um, and so the growth trajectory was clear to me and it was a scalable business. Um, and I just remember one night I was, I, I think I'd been up till like 2 or 3 a.m. for four nights in a row. Uh, just trying to manage the growth of both businesses and and uh, just <laughs> said, you know, Revent, there, there's a lot of growth opportunity there and it doesn't take nearly as much time to manage. Um, and so I stepped back and said, I either need to find uh, another CEO to run one of these companies or I need to let one go so that I can really focus in uh, both my time and my team's time. And after talking to advisors, my team uh, and, and family members, you know, that had kind of seen me trying, you know, really growing both of these, but, but almost getting to the edge of burnout, um, 
I I made the decision to kind of evaluate the sale of Society 43, and and luckily there had already been a lot of interest, so I knew it was a possibility. Mm. When you say a lot of interest, people approaching you? Correct. Yeah, we had several private equity firms um, approach us over the years because it was just such a unique business uh, that got a lot of attention, a lot of press. And there's a lot of sports fans out there that just want to be involved with uh, anything sports related. So it was typically, you know, uh, private equity firms that had uh, kind of uh, complementary businesses that they felt like they could add Society 43 in and scale it. Got it. And so what size of company is Society 43 at, at this time, at, at this time when you're up till four or two in the morning, four nights in a row? Uh, so we had, let's see, at the time I had 15 employees um, and volume wise, I mean, we were selling a few hundred thousand pairs of sunglasses a year. So got it. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Got it. So, so that's helpful. And so Take me through the process of selling it. So did you, like, what was your next step when you realized that, you know, selling it was something that you were, you know, you were open to? Did you take it to market? Did you hire a broker? Like, what, how, what physically was your next step? Yeah. Um, so we had an advisor that had also acted as a broker for several other uh, companies that had exited. Um, and so I, I met with him quite a bit just to talk through the process and, and you know, really create a compelling um, kind of package for our business. So package up the business and, and pitch it to, he helped us package up the business and pitch it to um, some private equity firms, many of which had already reached out to us. So we knew it was a warm lead. Um, and, you know, we, we did all of our due diligence on the financial side um, and uh, worked with that uh, advisor pretty closely on on pitching to several of these firms. What was in the package? Like if, for people who haven't ever yeah. seen sort of a pitch book or, a, uh, you know, a, a, a SIM, they call it in the M&A world, a confidential information memorandum. Like what is what did it look like? What were the key sort of things on the table of contents? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of it was just, um, what you'd expect. So like the financials, um, you know, the, uh, the licenses that we had and the agreements there. So just showing like what the real value in the business was not only the, the, um, you know, the, the financials, but the, um, the licenses and, and how difficult those are to get. And then really it's kind of a sizzle deck. So casting the, um, the story for the future of the business and, uh, just showing how, uh, we created this scalable platform that they could then take and, you know, go after the NFL and NHL and NASCAR. So a lot of like um, uh, three to five year plans that we had already laid out um, so they could uh, look at that and really understand what the opportunity was. So this advisor is shopping this to private equity companies. Did you also look at strategic buyers or was it strictly the PE kind of community? Uh, yeah, a few strategic buyers were in that mix. Um, obviously, strategics uh, you can you can typically kind of command a higher multiple just because for them, obviously, it can uh, it's a strategic buy, so they can uh, maybe even make more uh, of the business than maybe a private equity firm, uh, just given what they're already doing. So we did have some discussions there. We actually um, at, at one point got to kind of final negotiations and a number with a, a group uh, out of Arizona. Um, that was a strategic buyer, um, and that one ended up actually falling through. So that was that was a, a learning moment for all of us. But I think a great, um, yeah, a great process. Why did it fall through? 
Um, so we got all the way up until kind of the final signing and, uh, one of the members of that group, uh, decided that it was critical to keep, uh, myself and my business partner in the business for at least three years and made that kind of, uh, part of the deal at the last minute where, uh, you know, for me it was, I, I needed to be able to focus on growing Revent. And so that was a, a no go, um, and that that just shut down the deal. And so, talk to me about that. Uh, so, was that like why was that a surprise? Was that did, did you receive a letter of intent from that company that did not describe your role that, that they envisioned for you? Correct. Yeah, I mean, we were very upfront in these negotiations about um, the reason why we were selling uh, was that we, you know, we needed to focus on this other business, and it would be, um, you know, the new buyer's responsibility to uh, have a new CEO in place within um, six months was was the initial uh, deal there. Uh, so uh, they decided um, at the last minute there again to to extend that to three years, and that just. Uh, wouldn't work for our timelines and our goals. And what was the trigger that caused them to to do that? Um, you know, I probably didn't follow the advice in your book close enough. Uh, <laughs> I, I, the business, um, I think when I met with this individual, to him it was apparent that I was the business. Um, a lot of the relationships I had, a lot of the uh, the ability I had to navigate um, e-commerce and kind of some of the, the unique insights I had there and the vision for the future. And so for him, he almost saw it as if I'm going to buy this, I'm I'm buying, um, uh, put it, <laughs> I guess, well, yeah, I'm buying Jason along with it for at least three years so that, um, you know, the investment isn't just the business they built, but um, the knowledge that, that Jason has and, and the future of the business. So... So, and so, yeah. how did that look, Jason? In the way of when you when when you say it's got to be, you know, you've got to stick around for three years. Like, how did they enforce that? Was it an earnout structure yeah. that they they so they changed from hey, we're going to pay you cash to pay you know a little bit of cash and, and a lot of earnout. Is that how it changed? Correct. Yeah, yeah. It it shifted dramatically, and I mean, we still in the original structure we had a, an earnout based on sales targets, but it wasn't as heavily weighted. Um, so yeah, it shifted to keeping me in the business, and that was tied to uh, the earnout. Got it. So the, what was the original like? What was the uh, what were the ratios of cash to earnout in the original deal, and then how did it evolve at the last minute? Oh man, I so I may be off a little bit here, but I believe cash was eighty uh, percent in the original deal, and then the remaining twenty percent would be paid out over two years based on hitting uh, certain sales targets. So just top line revenue targets, um, for the remaining 20%. Got it. And you, and you didn't, you didn't think, Hey, I don't have to be around. I mean, the business is running without me. Uh, I can, you know, the company's going to continue on without me. And if they do a decent job, they can hit the 20%. They can hit the top line revenue numbers and I might get my 20%. Is that the yeah. kind of thinking? Yeah. Yeah. I was very confident that the, the business would be able to hit those numbers. Um, so yeah, the first deal was, uh, was a great one. It just, you know, as things, uh, as deals do, it shifted, um, at the last minute. And so we had to pivot and kind of reset. Got it. And then the second deal after the, the, the renegotiation or the attempted renegotiation, I, I should say, what mm -hmm. proportion was, was what they call downstroke, meaning sort of cash payment and what was, what was earn out? 
Yeah, it was it was basically the original deal we had had with the other group. So um, earning out, you know, the remaining twenty uh, percent over. I think it was three years, though. So sorry, I think I missed. I didn't answer my ask my question correctly. Oh, okay. Uh, with the Arizona group, the, the deal that fell apart, the guy yeah. came in at the last minute and said, it's, "You got to be you, Jason, for the oh, next gotcha. three years." The what was his proposal? Yeah, what was his second version of the? Um, I believe that it was around 50% up front and then the, the rest of the, um, the payout or earn out would be divided up amongst those three years, um, equally as we hit. Six. Got it. Yeah. And, and how did he broach that with you, Jason, that the change and, and I'd be interested in sort of how, in some of the specifics, like, was it 24 hours before the deal was supposed to close <laughs> five days, two weeks? Uh, did he pick up the phone? Was it an email face to face? Like how did, how did he broach it with you? Uh, yeah, so it was, it was, it went through our, our advisor who was acting as our broker at the time. So he got an email, um, just outlining some of the new terms. And, uh, that was, I mean, we were going to close the deal that week. So it was very last minute. Um, and, uh, we went, we actually got them on the phone and, and talked through it. And, um, they were just, uh, very adamant that this were, these were the new terms and, uh, you know, basically we could take it or leave it. And what was, how would you characterize your emotional response to that email? Oh man, frustration, I would say, uh, just cause we had put so much effort into, you know, time and effort into packaging it up, going to meetings, uh, and emotionally invested in, in this idea that, Hey, we're going to get an exit here. And, um, we were really happy with the terms. We were happy with the group. We thought that they were a good fit, um, and could take it on to be much more successful. So, I was deflated. I'll put it that way. You know, it took, a f I would say, a few days to get back on the horse um, and, and just, you know, kind of recover and recoup and reset. Got it. So take us through the next step because this deal fell apart, but it, you did successfully sell it. So how did, where did you go from there? Yeah, so um, we just kind of went back to uh, some of the other uh, – groups that had reached out to us and went through the same exercise. Uh, and one of the groups uh, who ended up being up in Seattle was just such a great fit um, as far as values and their their love of sport. And they were entrepreneurs themselves, so they would be owner operators uh, and met with them several times over over the course of, I think, 60 days. And it, um, the terms of the deal, I'll say, like weren't as good as the original one from Arizona, but I just felt really good about um, the buyers and, and what they could do with the business. And so for me, um, we we decided to engage with them and get the LOI in place. And they were ultimately the group that ended up buying it. And when you say terms, are you referring to sale price? Yeah, sale price. Um, and then... Uh, what else did we have in there? Yeah, I guess the, I think the terms, they were similar to that, that first deal proposal from Arizona, but there was uh, a little bit more of an earnout. I think it was over three years um, versus two. So slightly different, but. Got it, got it. Yeah. Roughly 80% up front, 20% on the, on the cover. Right, right. Got it. And what multiple of, of EBITDA were they offering, you know, kind of ballpark? Yeah, so we've been we've been uh, with all these negotiations somewhere between five and seven uh, multiple of EBITDA. That's where we were landing. Got it, got it, got it. And um, so you get the letter of intent in place. Uh, did you do any sort of uh, 
kind of playing one party off the other or you know when you when you're working with the guys up in in um Seattle did you did you eventually like did you play them off any other or did you kind of accept the original terms uh we did a little bit of back and forth just because we already had like this uh offer to comp off of so you know a very fresh offer to say you know this is this is uh a very recent bid we received and you know you guys you got to come in strong and there were other interested buyers so we I think for anyone looking to sell their business, you need to have a, at least two offers on the table and work to get those just because we found that really valuable when, you know, there, there were some points where they're trying to drive down the sale price and we could say, well, you know, there's a pivot opportunity here. So let's, uh, uh, let's make sure we're aligned and, and that, uh, we can get what we think is fair. Did you keep the Arizona offer alive for that purpose? Um, I'm trying to remember. I think we had, man, there was some overlap there. Um, but it, it actually was uh, with the the Seattle group. We we came to an agreement, a fair agreement for both parties pretty quickly. So I would say we did not negotiate that hard with them because we were happy with what they had brought to the table. Or uh, I think there were some slight tweaks to the offer. How would you characterize the 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 relationship? Uh, between the negotiations you had and the deal that fell apart versus the one that ultimately was consummated. I'd be, I'd be curious because I think listeners would be, be listening and say, like, how would I know if I'm going down the path with someone who's, who's about to pull the carpet out from under me or how do I know when I can really trust you know, the person on the other end of the, the deal is going to kind of follow through with what they're talking about? What, what sort of qualitative things did you feel the second time that you didn't feel the first time? Well, I would say it wasn't, there wasn't actually that big of a difference in how I felt about the buyers, but, but the problem was we weren't meeting with the entire group, uh, with the, with the Arizona group. So the individual that came in at the last minute and kind of, um, to use your phrase, pulled the rug out, uh, we just hadn't seen him. We, we knew he existed, he was there, but he was working on other deals. And so I think, um, the learning for me was make sure you're everyone's around the table that, that has decision-making power for the deal um, before you go too far down the road. So you do get to know all of those individuals. When would you have, when would you have looped them in and in, in the, in the process? I would say even, even if it was just like a few weeks before it actually happened, um, you know, I try and for me running a company is all about trust with your team. And I think some of them felt like, you know, they felt like they were a part of the core team. And then when they were, then, then was when it was communicated that the company had been sold and they had no idea that was happening, uh, that maybe eroded that trust a little bit. So I think just any time before the actual event happened, um, would have been, would have been a smart move. Yeah. Yeah. It's always a tricky one. I, it's probably the single biggest question I get when I do talks is like, how do I tell my employees? When do I tell my employees? Right. And it's, it's a tough one because of course if you tell them too early and they bolt or they get cold feet or they, you know, uh, they start telling people it, it can, it can go the other way. Right. And can drill a deal. So it's, exactly. it's, it's hard to know the right way. Yep. It's not easy. It's a tough one, but, but thanks for sharing that. Um, yeah, of course. so tell, tell us about Revent and, and what are you, you kind of, has it has it sort of 
given you the money and time to focus on Revit? Like, how did, how's, how's that all worked out? Yeah, yeah. So Revit is a direct-to-consumer um, lens replacement company. Uh, we produce aftermarket lenses for uh, any brand, uh, uh, any frame on the market. So I actually started that about uh, six months before Society 43, um, and that was – uh, purely on eBay for the first year, I did kind of the same thing, imported some lens samples, created some packaging, uh, and was just uh, putting them up on eBay as affordable replacement lenses. And it grew through word of mouth. So a lot of uh, people were telling their friends, you know, you can get replacement lenses that the OEM companies weren't making at an affordable price. Um, and uh, so now, fast forward, we have... See, we just added uh, 30,000 products to the site. Um, we bought actually machinery that we've set up here in Portland so that we can uh, edge lenses, basically a made-to-order model um, for, for any frame. So it's, uh, it's growing quickly. There's a lot of opportunity ahead. Um, we still have a lot of the core team here that worked on Society 43, which is a lot of fun. So we have that, that history together. And um, yeah, we do both prescription and non-prescription lenses. What proportion of the sale proceeds of Society 43 did you invest back in Revan? Uh, uh, close to 100%. So um, I think I took a little bit off the table for uh, uh, to help with a down payment on a house here in Portland. Uh, but we, yeah, we, our time, uh, the... The uh, the proceeds from the sale, uh, all were 100% into into Revent after that. How deal old are you? Through. Uh, I just turned 34. Because a lot of people listening to this, we go, man, you know, that's a lot of cash to just to just sort of reinvest back in and totally another <laughs> business. Yeah. Did you did you get paused that at all and think maybe I should put a little bit of uh, I, money away here? You know, I I'm a saver, so I've I'm I don't. I don't need a lot of money. I just don't feel like, uh, for me, it's more the thrill of building something great. Um, and, and I think everyone here <laughs> would tell you that I hope. Uh, so, you know, for me, I feel like I still have a lot of time and if, um, you know, I, I anticipate Revent will be a very, very big success. Um, so my business partner and I just decided let's, let's double down on this thing and, and, uh, not take any outside investment. That's another thing we really, have uh, prided ourselves on. We haven't taken any any loans, any outside investment. Um, we're able to do that because we use the proceeds, and that allows us to you know maintain control and and move faster. So, um, it, it was never actually a question in my mind, and that might be surprising to a lot of people. But um, what we're doing here is I really believe in, and I, and uh, so I couldn't think of a better investment. Well, I want to have you back when you set when you sell Revent and find out how it all <laughs> works for you, uh, Jason. Where do, where do people find you online? Where do people find Revent? Uh, what's the URL? Yeah, so um, my uh, Twitter tag is at jrwbolt. Um, either Instagram, Twitter, and then Revent is uh, Revent Optics. It's R E V A N T. O-P-T-I-C-S dot com. Um, and we're also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, a lot of big things coming out for Revent. So I hope your listeners uh, check it out. Jason Bull, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. 
John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.